You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. A couple of quick queer thoughts to start this week's show. But first, I hope everyone had a great pride. Lesbian, bi, trans, gay, pan, ace, two-spirited, NB, gender, queer, whatever your particular kind of queer looks like, feels like, sounds like, and marches like. I hope you had a great Pride Month and a great Pride Weekend and a big gay thank you from me to all the volunteers who were out at Pride Parades and festivals over the last four weeks throughout June, registering queers and our allies to vote. November is coming. Second... A quick trip down memory lane, if you will indulge me. So it is the summer of 1993, and I am waiting tables at a little cafe in Seattle, Cafe Septiem in pre-condo Tower Belltown. One of the other waiters comes in on his day off with his aunt and his uncle, and they sit in my section. Well, the place is so small that every table is in my section, technically, because I am the only waiter. He introduces me to them, and hey, they're from Colorado, and this is their first visit to Seattle. These days, we think of Colorado as a blue state, legal weed, Democratic governor, gay marriage a year before the rest of the country got it. But way back then, way, way back in the early 1990s, Colorado was a red state. So red that in 1992, Colorado voters approved an amendment to the state's constitution that prevented, quote unquote, homosexuals from bringing claims of discrimination and prevented any city, town or county in the state, along with any mayor, county chair or governor from taking any action, executive or otherwise, to protect, quote unquote, homosexuals from discrimination. Anyway, I drop the menus off at their table and make a little conversation and ask my coworkers, aunt and uncle, how they voted on Amendment 2, fully expecting that they would be among the 47% who voted against it. They were, after all, sitting in a cafe in Seattle with their not-straight nephew. They voted for it, they announced proudly. The gays were demanding special rights, they said, the very special right not to be discriminated against, and they had to shut that down. This was not the answer I expected. The owner of the cafe, Kurt, also a gay man, was behind the counter making coffee, and I ran up and talked to him for a quick second and got the okay to return to their table and tell this couple from Colorado to get out. Their waiter, gay, the owner of the cafe they were sitting in, gay, half the customers on any given day, gay, their nephew, don't know what they know, didn't say anything myself, so no latte bowls or buttermilk biscuits, Cafe Septium specialties, for you two. Get out. So you know which side I'm on in the war between the Red Hen restaurant and the Trump administration. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who lies to the American people for a living and who has stood at the White House podium and said that businesses have a right to discriminate against gay couples, she was asked to leave a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, the Red Hen, on Saturday night because no one on the predominantly gay waitstaff wanted to serve her. This has kicked off a debate about civility and social norms, but these are extraordinary times. And as Donald Trump has demonstrated to us again and again and again, Norms are for suckers. The Trump administration is literally putting babies in cages. And we have to stand up. We have to resist. We have to communicate whenever and wherever we can that we not only refuse to tolerate these immoral policies, but there will be a political and social cost for the people who carry them out 
or stand at podiums and lie their fucking faces off to justify these policies. So good for you, Red Hen, staffers and owners, for standing up to Sanders and the president of the United States, who says he might be too busy to sit down and answer Robert Mueller's questions, but somehow found the time to tweet out an attack on the Red Hen restaurant yesterday. Quick footnote about Amendment 2 in Colorado, overturned by the United States Supreme Court in 1996, the first in a string of pro-gay and queer rights rulings by the United States Supreme Court, majority decision written by Anthony Kennedy, who declared that Colorado could not declare gays and lesbians a stranger to its laws. Finally, and briefly, a quick word about a New York Times op-ed that ran on Saturday, the day before New York's 49th annual Pride Parade, under the unfortunate and unfortunately ridiculous headline, Is the Pride Parade Too Gay? In fairness to Joanne Spataro, whose opinion piece it was, she didn't write the headline. Writers don't write their headlines. And Spataro, who came out as a lesbian a few years ago, isn't suggesting that gay men should stop going to Pride or that there should be a quota. She takes issue with a lot of things, including gay men who use mask for mask on dating apps, which is really nothing new and a big improvement on quote-unquote straight acting, which you used to see in personal ads. And she slams rainbow capitalism and compulsory gayness, whatever that is. But her primary concern is that closeted people often feel isolated and unseen at Pride. We must reach out to our closeted family, she writes, and make Pride for everyone, not just for already out gay men, which I agree with. But that headline, you see this a lot around Pride and you see it a lot in print and you see it a lot in pixels on blogs that gay men, good-looking white gay men, are all you see at Pride. All you see, Spataro writes, are, quote, glistening muscled men in rainbow colors with perhaps a few, quote, lesbians in trucker hats sprinkled in here and there. While the media does focus too much attention on gay men, the editors of the New York Times put one photo from Pride on the cover of Monday's paper, and it is a picture of what appears to be, yeah, two white gay men sitting in an apartment window watching the parade go by. But I actually went to Pride yesterday in New York City, and I saw people of all ages, sizes, colors, genders, orientations, and interests. It was truly a rainbow. If you went to Pride and all you saw was good-looking gay white men, muscled up, glistening, glittered, then that's all you were looking for and all you were looking at. And that's on you. Coming up on today's show, Rob Walker from the New York Times, the Workologist column, is here to help with a tricky employment issue. He's on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads. Sociologist Aaron Shore is here for a What You Got segment about whether pornography really is getting more violent and more extreme. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 25-year-old lesbian living in Minnesota, and I recently joined a CrossFit CrossFit gym that I I really love. Um, Some people describe it as a queer-topia, which is great, but since I've joined this gym, I've, you know, started watching what what I'm eating. I'm just generally trying to be healthier. Uh, This includes, you know, I'm not drinking which is partly because I'm taking the bar exam at the end of July, and so I really don't have time to waste being hungover. But also I just, you know, I'm trying to be healthier, and so I'm, I'm watching what I'm eating. And I'm, I'm having an issue where I feel like my friends don't quite understand. You know, I'm, 
I, I'm avoiding really everything that I used to love to eat. Pizza, I'm not eating dairy, I'm not eating cheese, I'm not eating ice cream, you know, anything that I really <laughs> was the one that was like, let's go get some pizza, let's binge drink and, and whatever. And so I feel like whenever I try to explain what I'm doing to my friends, they don't take it seriously and they're not really hearing me. And I, I feel like maybe part of this is because I'm, I'm pretty butch, I'm masculine. And I, and I think that when I explain my feelings, I either come off as abrasive or I'm not taken seriously. When I explain to them, you know, I'm feeling kind of unsupported lately, uh, you know, here's my vision for myself and my life. And I worry because um, I don't have a large friend group. I, I keep, you know, I have maybe five friends that I talk to on a regular basis and that I keep in contact with. And so I'm worried that I'm going to lose these five friends that I have, not because I'm being healthier, but because I'm feeling unsupported and unloved, I guess. I'm curious as to what your definition of supportive is. Your diet has changed. You've made some major changes in the way you eat and your exercise routine and giving up alcohol and congrats on all of that. Your friends haven't made those changes, may not need to make those changes, may not want to make those changes, but they still want to be your friends. So they're inviting you along for pizza as they've always invited you along. And you can regard that as thoughtless, that they're laying temptations out in front of you. And that's inconsiderate of the changes that you're trying to make in your life and it's not supportive. Or you can go to the fucking pizza place with your friends and order a salad. I do it. You can do it. You can also go to a bar with your friends if you're not drinking for health reasons or because alcoholism, you're just not drinking. You can go to a bar and have a club soda and lime. I barely drink anymore. I still go out for drinks with my friends, but I don't like alcohol. It gives me fucking headaches, ruins my day. Two hours later, I get a blinding headache if I have two drinks. So I stand in the bar and I have a club soda and a lime and a pot lozenge. So I would encourage you not to be affronted each time your friends invite you out for whatever, invite you along wherever they're going. You can say to them without impugning their motives or without accusing them of being unsupportive that it's hard for you right now to be in a pizza place because you're not eating pizza. Maybe we could all go out for sushi instead. You can make an alternate suggestion or you can tag along, order the salad, or you can tell your friends like right now, bar exam, working out, changing my diet. Let's go do things and you should make the call. You should issue the invite. If you're just hanging back, waiting for an invite and this friend group of yours tends to hang out in a bar, tends to hang out in a pizza place or a pasta place, don't wait for the invite to the place that you don't want to go, where they're all going. Invite them to join you at the beach, on a bike ride, or a hike, at the sushi place, wherever it is that you can go out to eat and you enjoy going out to eat. Show some initiative and invite your friends to that place. And it can take some time for people to adjust. When we make a radical change in our life, the way we're living, we give up drugs or alcohol, we radically change our diet or we change our exercise routine in a major way. That is so present in our minds and is such a focus of ours, not necessarily as present in the minds of our friends or a focus of theirs. And it may take some time and some reminding for your friends to realize that they need to pick a place where there's going to be a food option for you as well and not just the slices joint at the end of the street. Dan, happy Father's Day. East Coast, male, straight. Talking to this girl. He's really awesome. Stayed in the sky for a little while. 
uh, me and her went out. We had we got a little physical, nothing crazy, didn't kiss, nothing like just dancing. Uh, and then we had a long, we had a good long talk back at her place afterwards. Me, her, and her friend. Uh, her friend passed out, and it was just me and her talking. So uh, you know, yeah, like I just kind of vibe that we have potential. We talk all the time, and my problem is that I'm worried that I'm in the process of being friend zoned. And I know there's some debate about whether the friend zone exists or not, whatever. But I'm starting to feel like we're talking all the time, but I feel like she's going to perceive me as a friend. And also my worry is that since this guy she's dating is living in a different country, it's a long distance thing. And it's also not been fully been dating for six months and it's long distance. I feel like she's just kind of using me as an emotional placeholder uh, while this guy is away. And then maybe if she decides to go live with him, she'll bounce and then I'll be left here feeling like a fucking idiot. You know, what do I do? It's like, do I play the kind of aloof card where, cause it's fine. It's weird. If it seems like it's just a general truth that when you don't really care as much, you don't really give a lot of attention. You're just like, whatever girls tend to be more into you. And I know it sounds like a dick move. I don't know. I don't consciously even do it myself, but a lot of times when I'm not do that, it seems like girls I'm not into will be way into me. And I'm just like, what the fuck? I'm not even giving you any signals. But it can be hard to kind of be aloof and pretend that, you, that you're not all about it when it's a girl that you're really into. It's hard to do that. Should I just continue to talk to her and just see what happens and then play my cards that way? Or B, should I maybe start being a little more aloof, a little more nonchalant, and then see if that gets her more interested and then maybe she'll consider breaking up. Even if it's a long shot, whatever, like maybe that will like prompt her. Or at least if not, let's say at least if not, here's C, is that if she ends up staying with this guy um, at least this way, if I like kind of playing aloof and I'm not really caring, at least I won't get my feelings hurt because I won't have dedicated time and I won't feel stupid for have been trying to make something happen and then been a placeholder and all that. Don't play the aloof card. How about the truth card? How about talking with this adult human like she's an adult human? You're in a relationship with somebody else. I'm attracted to you romantically and sexually if that's not in the cards because you're with somebody else, then I'm just going to have to not be in your life the way I've been in your life because it's going to be too painful for me. It is too painful for me because I don't want a friendship with you. And so it feels dishonest to go through the motions of being your friend while you're in this relationship with somebody else. If that goes south, if you find yourself single and you're interested in me in the same way that I'm interested in you or exploring the possibility you might be interested in me in that way, give me a call. And, and you say, zooming out for a second, that – if you play this aloof game that, that, that women come running, we also hear that women like to be pursued. So which is it? Women like to be pursued. Women like to run after and pursue themselves, some aloof guy. Maybe all women are different. Maybe women don't all want the same thing and the same approach doesn't work with all women and people should stop playing games and just be themselves and then attract the kind of person who wants to be with your authentic self, not some Potemkin village version of yourself, some fucking strategy that you deployed because you read about it on the internet. Just be you. And the fastest way and the quickest, most effective way to get who you are across to someone, to be you to them, is to tell them the fucking truth. So tell this adult that you are interested in the truth, including your fears and insecurities and why you're just going to have to pull back. But if she finds herself single and she's interested in you, Yahtzee, she should give you a call. 
In the meantime, you're going to get out there and explore other possibilities, date other women, and get the fuck on with your life. Hi, Dan. I'm here with my girlfriend and two of our gay friends, boys, males. And we're at this bar and a straight dude, it's a gay bar, but a straight dude works here. And he just tried to tell us that a lot of gay men get a circumference circle tattoo on their arm to show how deep they can fist another dude. None of us believe him. None of us have heard about this, but we would really love to know if this is a thing and if it's a new thing, if it's a young thing. We have no idea. He told us to look it up. We Googled. We did not get any results. So are gay men tattooing rings on their arms to show how deeply they can fist a dude? He also made a very big fight for gay men double fisting, which we have more questions about because none of us have run into this. So do gay men double fist? (laughs) Boy, this straight bartender sure does know a lot about Gay men. Um, do gay men double fist? Well, sure. There are some videos out there that would seem to demonstrate that there are some fisting bottoms who can accommodate two fists at once. That is a thing that happens. Do all gay men do that? Do a lot of gay men do that? No, that is a very specialized Cirque du Soleil fist fucking kind of skill. And not everybody does that. Not everybody wants to do that or can do it. Do gay men get tattoos, circumference tattoos, a ring around their forearm showing how deep they can fist? This is how you know for sure that this bartender in the gay bar doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about or the gay people that he works with are telling him things that aren't true to make fun of him and to tease him. Because how deep you can get your arm into someone when you're fisting them isn't about how far you can shove your arm up somebody. It's not something you're doing. It's how much of your arm they, the fisting bottom, can accommodate. So it's not like fisting bottoms look for people with the rings as far up their arms as possible because they're the best fisters in the world. Fisting bottoms enjoy getting fisted and can take as much as that individual and individual fisting bottom can take and no more. It doesn't matter where the ring on the arm might be. All that said, I have seen a couple of guys. I have met a couple of guys who have tattooed basically rulers up their forearms, inches all marked out because they fist and they'll tell you that it's fun to watch the ruler disappear and to see how much, how many inches of their forearm they can get up a guy. But it is not universal. It is not common. It's not something, quote-unquote, a lot of gay men do. And fisting, for the record, is something that lesbians do and it's something that straight people do too, anal and vaginal. Fisting is no more exclusively a gay sex act than anal sex is. Hey, Dan. I'm a lady in my mid-20s in Sydney, Australia, and I just wanted to get your opinion on this stupid recurring argument that my boyfriend and I have. So we've been dating for a little over two years, and for nearly four years, I've been getting the tiniest, tiniest amount of filler in my lips. I have a slightly lopsided upper lip, so it's mostly just to correct that, but also I just like the way it looks. Anyway, around two months into our relationship, I had them refilled and he flipped out like, no, you were beautiful before, like, I'm so disappointed, I didn't think you were that kind of girl. And at the time, just saying, excuse me, 
you are not entitled to dictate what I do with my face. If you don't like it, see ya. Um, so he dropped it then. And we've had a really loving, successful, super sexy relationship ever since. But every nine months or so, whenever I get it redone, we just jump back into this stupid circular argument where he just guilts me and then ignores me for a day or two. Anyway, it's about time to have it redone and I'm just dreading the fight it'll bring up. Like, I really love this guy. He's a genuinely fantastic pun. Otherwise, sometimes I think, fine, I'll just let it dissolve and go away. But I also don't want him feeling like all it takes is to put me down and then I'll change my mind and do what he wants. So, yes. Um, I'd love to know your opinion. The time for him to tap out, if this was unacceptable to him, was two years ago when you first went and got your lips plumped up and he objected and you guys had that fight and you told him that he could fuck the fuck off, that they were your lips and you were going to maintain them or get fillers occasionally because that's what you wanted to do with your fucking face. That he stuck around and continues to pick at you and initiate these fights and sulk when you do this thing that you made very clear to him at the beginning of the relationship that you did and would be doing on a semi-regular basis if he opted to stay with you isn't fair. This was the price of admission that he had to pay to be with you, which was he got to roll out his objections. You told him to fuck off and stuff them and he stuck around which means he doesn't get to continue to complain about this or guilt you about it or make you feel terrible about it. So you need to have that, this is deal breaker territory discussion with him again. You need to say to him, we're done having this fight. I'm going to do this every eight or nine months or so because it's what I would like to do with my body. You've known that basically since the eighth week of our relationship. I'm done having this fight, done putting up with you pouting at me and guilting me about it. If you can't, Allow for this. We're done. It's over. Hey, Dan and the crew. I am one of those ladies that started having sex before knowing how to pleasure myself. So as you can imagine, I was having a lot of very unsatisfactory sex for about a decade until I started masturbating myself. I describe my libido as being dormant. I don't necessarily get horny very often. Um, and I can go months, weeks or sometimes even months without masturbating or having sex. Uh, but sometimes I can also masturbate several times a week. So I was wondering, does this mean that my libido is just generally lower since I wasn't necessarily interested in learning how to pleasure myself early on? Also, is there a way to increase my libido, maybe by actively making an effort to masturbate more often do you think that I could maybe crave it more? It's possible you have a naturally low libido and this is your baseline. This is your set point and that doesn't mean you're defective or damaged. But I'd like to read a letter to you that I got at Savage Love The Column after I gave some advice to a guy whose girlfriend had a low libido and, and a reader wrote in and made an important point so I am just going to read the letter. Dan, you neglected to ask one very important question of this man. It's something I think you forgot to mention in many of your responses to women. Ask her about her birth control. As someone who lived with a stifled libido for the better part of my 20s, I cannot emphasize enough what a game changer it was to find out that any and all hormonal birth control methods effectively killed my libido. 
I tried the highest doses all the way down to the lowest doses on the market and several in between, and all of them had the same effect. Doctors do not tell women about this side effect. They need to hear it somewhere. Well, you're hearing it here. If you went on birth control in your teens, if your mother did the right thing and took you down to Planned Parenthood when you became sexually active, it's possible that you don't know what your true libido's baseline setting is. Now, not all women have this reaction to hormonal birth control. It doesn't negatively impact all women's libidos, but a significant chunk of women, it does have this effect. So you have a low libido and you've been on birth control, hormonal birth control, all your adult life, you might want to do a little experiment where you go off the hormonal birth control. Get a non-hormonal IUD if you're sexually active. Doesn't protect you from the rest of the sexually transmitted infections out there, but it will protect you from the original sexually transmitted infection, aka pregnancy. And see if your libido doesn't kick into a higher gear. If it doesn't, this may be your base setting, and that is not necessarily a problem, and it's not necessarily locked in for life. People do experience over the decades changes, surges in their interest in sex and their horniness in their libidos. And people with low libidos at 20 can become complete fucking horn dogs in their 30s or 40s. And often you hear from women that this is true for them. Is it biological? Is it cultural? Women aren't socialized to feel entitled to sexual pleasure and sexual self-fulfillment in the same way men are. And sometimes women come into that realization later in life that they are just as entitled to sexual pleasure and, and fulfillment as men. And that shift can awaken in some women, that realization, a roaring libido that they thought was never there, that was just buried under cultural shit, under slut shaming, under sex negativity, under women aren't interested in sex, men are the horn dogs crap that the culture buys into, that men buy into, that women buy into, and ain't necessarily so. Hi, Dan. Cis female calling with a question about going back to work. I was the victim of a violation of privacy by my former employer. After a long and difficult criminal battle, I was able to get him charged, and he is now a registered sex offender. But I now have been out of the workforce for a, over a year, and I've been having a hard time deciding how to discuss this with former or with future employers. Um, I'm very proud of the justice I received, but I don't know how new bosses are going to take that. And I'm just curious, do I mention this? Do, do I tell them what really happened as to why I took a year off of work? I know it's not a great thing to have this gap in employment and my confidence is down enough after the violation of my privacy. I'm just wondering, what do I tell new bosses when I am trying to get a job? Joining me to help tackle this question, Rob Walker, who writes the Workologist column every other week in the Sunday business section of the New York Times. Hey, Rob. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. So getting quickly to this question, you know, she should be lauded for pursuing this, for, for what yeah. she did, for taking this guy on. But in a job interview... You really don't want to lead with, hey, I put my last boss in jail. Give me a job, right? <laughs> right, right. And um, I think, you know, and clearly, like, she's thinking about this kind of in the right way and that, like, she's wor she's worried about talking about it at all. It doesn't sound like it's a topic that she's, like, super anxious to get into in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, uh, follow that instinct and you want to try to avoid it. I would give some thought to 
you know, trying to uh, sort of sort of keeping in mind that like to her, this is this monumental thing that she just thinks it's inevitable that she's going to end up in this in-depth conversation about it. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, I think that what she wants to do is think about what is something that she can say that's relatively innocuous that, you know, not a lie, but just as like, look, I needed to take some, t- I had, uh, you know, and try to spin it positively. Like I've always really, you know, been all about work and everything, but I went through this one experience at my last employer that I just had to take some time off. And, you know, now I'm raring to go, like always sort of try to finish on the idea of something forward looking and positive that that way. Now to be clear, we both think that in a perfect world, she should be able to march into a job interview and say my last job, my boss was a sexual predator and he needed to go to jail and I put him there and I should put that on my fucking resume i should be able to put that on my fucking resume as an achievement but yeah unfortunately we don't live in that world and even people employers who think that was the right thing to do and your boss was scum there's going to be this prejudice this could potentially be held against you when it comes down to you and one other candidate or you and 12 other candidates and that's unfortunate and it shouldn't be that way but it is that way and the caller's gonna have to strategize around how to finesse that if she wants yeah. to get another goddamn job, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. But part of my thinking here isn't just that. It's also that I don't think that she wants to be talking about this as the most interesting thing about herself, mm. you know, um, in, in life or in her job skills. Like, I don't think she wants to be defined by it. And so she should be able to control exactly how much she wants to say about it or not say about it. And right now, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm judging a lot by talk to this person but you hear the voice it just doesn't sound like something that she's like super excited to be discussing with people in in depth um but i would just but and so that's why i think it's what's important is kind of the order and like the way you put it before like you don't want to lead with this you don't want to walk into the office and say like okay first thing you need to know about me is i put this guy in jail i think there's other things you want to know first and and so you start by positioning like, well, I needed to take a year off and then kind of let it go from there. And it, the questions they ask, you can answer them, but you're kind of more in control that way. I do and, hiring here at Lestrangear, my base in Seattle, my home paper. And I frequently look at resumes and so, and I don't always do the math. Like I don't always yeah. look at the start date and the end date and then start graphing or charting right. that out to make sure there's no gaps in employment. It may not even be an issue. Right. Right. That's what that's exactly what I'm getting at is that like it's much more common. So like a lot of people take a year or two for whatever reason could be they had a kid or they had, you know, all kinds of things, personal things, professional things. It's just not as much a red flag. I think that people overestimate. Mm -hmm. They overthink it from their own point of view uh, that like, oh, my God, it's this screaming red flag that I took a year off and that's all they're going to want to talk about. Not really. And that's why you shouldn't you know, you shouldn't make it happen that way. You should go into it. Uh, with your own things to say. And, and with someone like her, I would say, you know, you might, I, I often recommend this, like practice talking at, like pick a friend or just someone you trust and practice with them a little bit about like try different lines that sound that you're comfortable with that are true, that uh, will move the conversation hopefully in the direction that you want. Just so you're more comfortable talking about it because job interviews can be weird. But to frame that year, your advice as the workologist is to, <laughs> Is to roll, you know, roll in there with something that you can say about that year that's innocuous but not deceitful. That's not here's everything that happened, but isn't then something you get busted on later for having lied about. You didn't go to France and, <laughs> right. and study in some business school program 
you know, you don't want to actively lie, but you could obfuscate a little. I'm saying kick it down the road a little bit in that, like, you don't want to lead with it and they're going to ask some questions. And, and it's probably the case that at some point in the process, you'll want to be come relatively out with all of it because there's nothing to be ashamed of here. It sounds it sounds very she was victimized. Yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, I think that what the employer is, you know, employers being human beings, I think that what they're going to key on isn't necessarily the incident, but like is 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 going to be like they're going to be making judgments about is this person ready to come back to work? Mm. Um, and I think you want to sound as much as possible like someone who's ready to come back to work and you're not still living in that moment of you're not reliving the last year of trauma over and over. You're ready to go. You're ready to move on. And that's easy for me to blithely say that, but that's just, you know, from the point of view of someone who's doing the hiring, that's whether they admit it or not, that's what they're going to be thinking. Rob Walker writes the workologist column, which appears in the Sunday business section of the New York Times every other week. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Rob. We so appreciate it because this stuff, workplace stuff, getting a real job, I've never had one. It is, <laughs> it is above or below or beside my pay grade. I'm not sure which. I hear you. Well, thanks very much. I love being on the show. I will tell you one thing, though. Uh, it's every week now. Oh, uh, congratulations. Just, That's wonderful. This year it moved to every week. Yeah. Oh, so my God. How do I not know that? There's no Sunday Times that I won't be in. So your readers <laughs> should buy all of them. Or and, your listeners should buy all of them. And your column is one of the reasons I read the Sunday business section of the New York Times. Business ain't my jam, but I do, <laughs> I do really enjoy your column. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I'll do it anytime. It's always fun. Hi, Dan. I am a 23-year-old cis gay man living in the Midwest, and I could really use your advice. I have struggled with body dysmorphia uh, for many years now and actually uh, struggled with uh, anorexia and overexercising in college. I've been treated, still see a therapist regularly for it, but the last big hurdle I have going on is how I'm attracted to guys. I'm very attracted to muscles on a guy, I enjoy watching body worship porn. My preferences on grinder and scruff are set for that body type. And I always ask before hooking up with a guy if it is okay for me to feel their muscles and for them to flex for me because that's something of a prerequisite for me. While that's okay for fun hookups where there aren't a lot of deep conversations involved, it's more of an issue for my dating life. I know objectively that I'm at least average looking, kind of skinny, decent skin and haircut, but not someone with a bunch of beach selfies on Instagram. But my lingering insecurities about my appearance means I'm almost always perceiving every guy I'm attracted to as way out of my league without even trying to talk to them. And even if I do manage to get a few dates with someone, this anxiety stays with me. What's really problematic for me is that a lot of these guys like to talk about their fitness and diets, which, while very interesting, are triggering for me, especially in that context. This even extends to friendly offhand comments about slightly different haircuts I should try or just mentioning that uh, I'm kind of skinny. I don't really know what to do here. I'm very private about my earlier struggles and don't want to start off giving a list of triggering topics and comments. I don't know how to make myself be more attracted to a broader range of guys, and I don't know how to be more comfortable around them when I do manage to get a date. Please help. This is a simple matter of taking yes for an answer and using your words. It doesn't seem like you have any problem lining up dates with muscly guys that you find on Grindr who must, by inference, since they're inviting you over to worship their muscles, find you attractive. In gay land, there are certainly 
guys who are attracted to their body doubles. Twinks who want twinks, bears who want bears, gym guys who want gym guys. But there are also, if you look around, guys who are attracted to their opposites. You will see twinks who are with big muscle bears and big muscle bears who are with twinks and gym gods who are with skinny guys because they are attracted to that type because for some it's similarities that turn them on in gay land for others it's contrast so when a guy wants to keep seeing you date after date after date three or four dates he's into you he's attracted to you attracted to you to your face to your haircut to your body as it is now and you just have to tell yourself that over and over and over again, that the guy who is with you is attracted to you. Otherwise, he wouldn't be with you. Certainly wouldn't be going out with you on a second or third or having a hookup with you a second or third or fourth time. As for the conversations about diet, exercise, haircut, appearance that you find triggering because of your history of anorexia, with body dysmorphia, you can shut that down deftly. Just if it comes up, say to them, I had a health crisis, which is true, that impacted how I look and made me kind of self-conscious about it. And just for now, these kinds of conversations, they make me uneasy. But conversations about my appearance or conversations about diet and exercise routines make me uneasy. So let's talk about other stuff. Or how about I just shut up and worship your muscles some more? You can pivot from it. And you can't be with a guy. You can't be with a guy long-term. You can't date a guy who isn't going to be considerate of and sensitive to your particular issues around food, around diet, around exercise, around appearance. So don't be afraid of just putting it out there because a guy who hears that and balks, a guy who hears that and runs is a guy that you didn't want to be with anyway. He's just jumped out of your dating pool and did you a favor by jumping. It's the guy who you tell that to who is sensitive to it, who welcomes that, who is grateful to have that information because he likes you and doesn't want to do or say anything that might upset you or cause you to ghost on him, Yahtzee, you found the right muscle-bound guy, the sensitive, considerate, muscle-bound guy who wants to be with you, who's attracted to you, and is willing to talk about things other than his diet and exercise routine or your haircut. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old bisexual woman living in Chicago, and I am having a really bad day and kind of calling you as a form of therapy and also hoping that I hear from you and that you can help me out. I got back together kind of accidentally slash not really by my choosing with my emotionally abusive ex-boyfriend almost three months ago. I've been saying for three months I need to break up with him. I am afraid of him. I feel like I can't say no to him. He knows all the buttons to push with me uh, in terms of manipulation. And I feel like I just feel trapped. I've broken up with him once. I know I can do it again, but I just, I fear for my safety. I just, I don't know what to do. And my best friend, I've I've been lying to her saying that I broke up with this guy months ago. I haven't told anybody. I'm lying to everybody about it. And I had to cancel plans with my best friend because this ex-boyfriend wants to do something with me tonight, despite knowing I had plans with my best friend. And she's now said, basically, I don't want to be your friend anymore. So uh, two questions, I guess. Best way to break up with somebody that you feel like is potentially physically threatening when you have no support because I haven't told anybody and I feel like if I did, I would lose friends. 
Uh, and two, do I tell those friends and say, look, this is why this was happening and um, try to explain myself. I just feel like I'm in this fucking horrible mess that I don't know how to get out of and I don't know if I can fix. When someone says I can't break up with him, or less often, but it is sometimes said, her, because I fear for my safety, and then they describe this as a relationship, I like to jump in and correct them. That's not a relationship. It's a hostage situation. You fear for your safety if you should leave and you should have an absolute right to exit any relationship at any time you wish to exit. It ain't a relationship anymore. It's a crisis. You say you have no support because you haven't told anybody. Tell people. Sometimes we watch friends go back again and again and again to people who are terrible and terrible for them and terrible to them. And we can lose our patience as our friend comes to us again and again and again with the same story, the same tale of woe. And we give them the same advice that we've given them again and again and again, which is to get the fuck away from that person permanently and forever and not be dragged back to get the fuck away from that person once and for all. And Watching a friend disregard that advice and go back to that person, sometimes we reach a point where we're like, okay, you've made your choice, which is to be with them and I can't be your friend. I can't watch you do this to yourself. I can't be complicit. And that's how it can feel. You know, when somebody comes to you again and again and again to complain about the terrible relationship they're in and how miserable, sometimes fearful they are, and you talk them down and you help them out and you maybe get them out of the relationship a couple times and they go back. You just start to feel like you're part of an enabling process that allows them to stay in the relationship that on some level, perhaps they're enjoying this drama and being at the center of attention. And I know that's terrible and that sounds like victim blaming, but we've seen it. I've seen it with friends and it can take someone's friend saying, look, I am done. I am out for someone to realize that this has to stop that, they got to get out now once and for all. And you can go to your friends, your friends who said, look, I'm done. I'm out. If you go to them and you throw yourself on their mercy, I promise you, maybe not all of them, enough of them will step up because what they really want is you out. If you identify this problem of having gone back again and again and again, and acknowledge that that was frustrating for your friends to watch and perhaps feel a party to even your friends who've cut you off, who say that they're out they'll come back. And then you need to make a plan. I would recommend going to womenshealth.gov and looking up leaving abusive relationship. And there is a list of tips. Identify a safe friend or friends in a safe place to go. Keep an alternative cell phone handy in case he seizes yours. Memorize phone numbers of family and friends and shelters in case you need them and your partner steals your phone. There are other very practical tips there, including going to the police and preemptively filing a restraining order. Restraining orders aren't force fields, and there are lots of people in cemeteries who had active restraining orders against them. And if you fear for your physical safety, you need to get away from this person in such a way where they cannot find you. That may mean moving home, out of state, wherever you can go, friends or family who can take you in for a while. Call in those favors and tell people this is it. This is the last time because you are out. You are done. And then get out and be done. I'm really sorry you're in this situation. My heart goes out to you. It is difficult to exit an abusive relationship. It is hard. People outside of abusive relationships will tell themselves, why didn't you just leave? And it's not that simple. 
People don't leave because they're afraid to leave, that leaving will make it worse. And there are plenty of examples in the front pages of newspapers and in cemeteries all over the country where leaving indeed did make it worse, which is not a reason to stay. It is a reason to make a really good escape plan, call in the assistance of friends and family, and get away from this guy. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis, white, hetero male that recently moved to the West Coast from the East Coast. I'm in a very loving, ethically non-monogamous relationship with a wonderful woman that is my entire universe. Moving to the West Coast, I'm effectively moving into an entirely new ecosystem in which I know practically no one. I've been using the shift in my life as an excuse to open up about my and my fiancé's non-monogamous ways, but the question has come up recently as to the workplace. Do I out myself within my office as non-monogamous? I am, at outward appearance, not someone that most people would expect practice ethical non-monogamy, which is why I feel so strongly about being open about it. I raised this question to my fiancé, and she is of the belief that I should not bring this up unless absolutely necessary, and I'm inclined to agree with her about this. I feel, however, that by being open in all other aspects of myself, but holding back in the office betrays the core concept of bringing social understanding of non-monogamy to the forefront. What do I do? Do I live my life open with no regard to how others will perceive me? Or do I practice disciplined self-restraint when necessary? Some relationships you run on a need-to-know basis. And a work relationship is definitely something that you run on a need-to-know basis. There's a lot of stigma attached to kink. People into S&M have been discriminated against. They've had their children taken for, away from them in custody disputes. That's a stigma that needs to be fought. If you were at work and someone just marched up to you and announced that they like to be tied up and whipped and it makes their dick really hard when that happens, you would wonder why they were telling you this thing about them that you didn't need to know. You might need to know that if you were traipsing around a BDSM festival, if you went to Folsom Street Fair and you ran into this coworker who was in the process of being tied up and whipped, then there would be a context for the sharing of that information. They wouldn't even have to share it. It would just be a fact about them that you gleaned from what you observed. In the same way, marching up to people and announcing that you're not monogamous when there's no need for them to know that and nothing has come up in context that makes sharing that a reasonable thing to do. I agree that more people who are in open relationships or polyamorous relationships need to be out about that. I think if you really want to change the world, look at the queers, look at the gays. The first place you do that is with friends and family. You can affect the change you want to see in the world around non-monogamy by being out and open with your friends and family about being non-monogamous, about being polyamorous, about the kind of relationship that you're in. At work, maybe there'll come a time where it's relevant if you have two partners or if you're on Tinder and a coworker clocks you on Tinder or sees you on Tinder and says something or becomes gossip, then you can address it. I'm not on Tinder. I'm not cheating. We're in an open relationship, period, the end. And you don't have to go into it in any greater detail than that. There is social monogamy and there is sexual monogamy. A lot of people who are not sexually monogamous default because the assumptions people make about coupled folks default into perceived sexual monogamy. People shouldn't make that assumption, but it's not an unreasonable assumption to make because most coupled people are indeed 
monogamous. And there will be times and places in your professional relationships where you can push back against that assumption. But you have to use good judgment about when and where and how and who you tell and why you tell them. Otherwise, you're going to look like a crazy person, look like the kinkster running around the office announcing to everyone that they like to get whipped because it makes their dick hard. And people are going to wonder what the hell is wrong with him that he feels the need to tell us. Even people who also like to get whipped and make their dicks hard, who he might be telling in the office because he doesn't know who else is kinky, you're going to wonder what the fuck is wrong with you. Same thing applies here, but to a lesser extent. Because what you like to do in bed with a partner, that is almost always, except for your partners and your friends that you enjoy swapping stories with, TMI. The relationships that you have, the bonds that you form, there's a public dimension to that. It's not just what you do, it's also how you move through the world, the relationships that you have. A husband isn't just a sex partner. They also have a public role to play in your life. And if you have multiple partners, your multiple partners have public roles to play in your life and they should be acknowledged and honored and rolled out. But in the workplace and with friends and family, you can get out in front of that. You can be proactive and tell your mom and dad that you're in an open relationship and you and your partner are open to thirds or fourths. And so a Thanksgiving dinner at some point in the future down the road, you might be there with two girlfriends or your girlfriend might be there with her two boyfriends, one of which would be presumably you. There may come a time when you need to roll that out at work, but I don't think you do it proactively at work. Maintain a professional demeanor. If it comes up, if there's some work function two, three years down the road when you have two partners where partners are invited, you can raise the subject of people at this office who have more than one partner. Is it a plus one or is it a plus partner? And then you will have effectively outed yourself at a moment where they kind of needed to know. But right now, particularly when you're brand new, they don't need to know. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Professor Aaron Shore, a sociologist at McGill University. Hey, Professor Shore, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you doing, Dan? Thank you. I'm I'm well. Thank you for, for coming on the show. So, what do you got? Well, I got a new study that looked at uh, pornography um, and looked more specifically at the question of is pornography getting harder and harder, which is kind of um, almost a truism, I would say, in popular media, and also you find it in um, uh, some research. Um, the argument that pornography is getting more and more aggressive, more and more violent, it's so ubiquitous that people become desensitized to the porn they enjoyed initially, and then they have to up the ante, and the pornographers and performers have to constantly up the ante and outdo themselves, and it's getting more and more dangerous out there for porn performers, but also for people who are partnered with people who've been sex-educated by porn and might have porn-influenced expectations, that they're in That's danger. Exactly. That's exactly it, right? It relies on a, a, a premise, right, which is contested in itself, that um, pornography is addictive, Mm-hmm. That um, um, viewers, especially male viewers, uh, get addicted to it, and they, as they get addicted, uh, they need to, as you say, up the ante and, and you know consume more exciting, uh, more extreme, more aggressive content to stay aroused. And so that's what that's what you took a look at. Did you find that to be true? What did the data show? Well, 
the data actually shows a very different story. I, I should say, first of all, that um, there's, there's been studies on aggression in pornography quite a bit uh, in the past. Um, and one of them that I found particularly interesting, um, I, sh I should maybe um, uh, backtrack a little bit and say that I'm teaching in my, um, uh, I'm teaching an undergraduate class on deviance where I talk about pornography and I teach about pornography. And as part of this class, I show a documentary called The Price of Pleasure, quite a well done pro uh, documentary, I would say, but it pre presents quite a one-sided picture, one a one-sided story the claim in that um, video is that mainstream pornography is violent by and large, and it largely relies on, on a study from 2010 by Bridges and colleagues um, that reported that about 90% of the videos, um, most highly watched videos, contain violence. Um, and this figure always um, uh, seemed exceptionally high to me. So that's why I decided to do this study. That's where I, 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 that was my starting point, and I wanted to update it. Um, and I found two major problems with this study. One, it, would, it was relying on rentals, rental videos, and who watches these um, these days. It had a somewhat contested definition of aggression, of violence. And so I wanted to, to, to see if I could uh, take their own definition, the definition from this original study, that basically said any kind of visible aggression that we see we'll code as aggression that includes uh, any kind of any act of slapping or spanking or hitting or choking or gagging and contrast it with other definitions specifically McKee um, offered a definition that we should focus our attention on non-consensual aggression um, that is purposeful attempts to harm another person when the other person attempts to avoid the harm or expresses or shows discomfort at the action which isn't always the case when you slap someone's ass. You slap one person's ass and they don't like it and they make that clear. You slap another person's ass and they coo and purr and Exactly, right? And, and, you know, there, there's all kinds of arguments about it, right? And some of them say, well, you know, within this industry, what could you expect, right? A, a performer in, in this industry, right, especially the, the female performers are supposed to um, fake pleasure even when they don't enjoy it. But I think it does matter. It matter at least to what people at home see, right? And so, like, right, if, if, if someone expresses displeasure, if someone expresses, I don't want you to do that, and still it continues, that's one message. And another message is when, you know, things are in, done with consent or at least visible uh, consent. And so I looked at um, both of these uh, definitions of, of, of aggression. Uh, and I have to say, first of all, I found that it's not as high as reported by Bridges at all. If you look at the most watched videos, the highest estimation I think you, you could, you could uh, reach is about 40% of the videos include some type of aggression, but that also includes um, a spanking and what we would call um, lighter uh, acts of aggression. But I think one of the interesting things is that there's a decline in this aggression. So you found that... It Porn, the representations of aggression in porn wasn't getting more extreme or even growing over time, but shrinking, less aggression in porn over time? That's, ex that's exactly the case. If we're talking about all visible acts of aggression, you can't really see um, a, a, a tendency, right? I, I couldn't see either way, not clear, no clear uh, changes up or down for that. But if you're talking about non-consensual aggression, there's a clear decrease in that. 
from about, I would say, 15% in 2008 to um, 5% more recently. And I also saw uh, declines in aggressive titles, um, declines in the duration of violence in the average video. Uh, and so all of these, unlike the expectations that you know we'll find more and more of these, uh, we're actually finding less of these. Weekly. So why do you think if, if it's not just you know, the, the significance of the, the decline is stark. If it's been dropping and dropping so precipitously, why do we all sort of just accept or believe or why do people push this notion that porn just keeps getting more and more and more extreme and more and more violent? Why yeah. is that the, the conventional wisdom? I didn't believe that. Um, right. I'm glad that your study yeah. backed up my assumptions or yeah. my impressions. Um, but why do so many people – push this? Why are so many people invested in this notion that porn just keeps getting more violent and more extreme? No, to, to be honest, I think a lot of it is ideological, right? There's a, a lot of people invested in anti-porn um, and the idea that porn is a big bad wolf. Um, and I want to be clear, um, I personally don't like much of the pornography out there and how it looks like. Uh, I would much rather prefer more egalitarian uh, porn um, I do not like a figure that shows even, you know, even if it's not 90%, I still don't like 40% of the videos to be aggressive. Um, but but there is this idea that, that porn is, you know, the big um, illness of our, of our time, right? And in the interest of, of, of like making it even bigger than it is, I think, right, people are talking about how worse and worse it, 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 it uh, gets. And there's, I would say, a bit of a strange coalition, or perhaps not that strange, right, between um, anti-porn feminists, who I actually identify with, and then religious fractions um, that see porn as the evil and try to make it worse than it is and talk about it in terms of it, it is worse. Than so it uh, is. for listeners out there who might be curious to, to read the study itself, uh, what's the title and where was it published uh, and where can they find it? The title of the study is um, Harder and Harder, question mark, Is Mainstream Pornography Becoming Increasingly Violent? And Do Viewers Prefer Violent Content? Um, and I should say that the other um, finding, the other important finding, I think there's two assumptions in this harder and harder um, argument. One of them is that porn is getting more and more violent with time, but also that viewers being addicted and being um, um, need um, to up the ante, they want to they want to see more violent um, uh, content, and that is also something that I absolutely found is not true. Um, videos with more views contain less aggression. Uh, viewers prefer videos with less aggression, uh, as measured by the, the amount of likes that a video gets. And in particular, they dislike videos with non-consensual aggression. So when you find videos where women um, kind of like object what, what what's happening or female performers viewers tend to not like these and they definitely prefer videos where female performers display more pleasure. Good to know. I'm, I'm psyched by the, the, the findings of your study. Uh, where can people find it? It's published in the Journal of Sex Research and it's um, a recent, um, it's, it's still um, an online edition, but uh, it can be found in that uh, journal. There's also recent pieces in, I think, the Daily Mail and the conversation uh, summarizing the main findings. Professor Aaron Shore, sociologist at McGill University. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, What You Got, and I love what you got. Thanks. My pleasure, Dan.
Hi, Dan. I'm calling you at uh, almost 2 o'clock in the morning. It's uh, been an interesting week. I'm 33 years old. I've been married six years to my husband. We've been together for 12. We were, I thought, happy until fairly recently. I started to have some issues with depression last fall that I have been grappling with on my own. Um, and around March, he started to behave very strangely. We'd been talking about and sort of not trying, but not not trying to have a baby. And all of a sudden, he was out late one night and behaved very strangely, was drinking very heavily, began drinking more and more heavily. I started to suspect that he was cheating. I don't know. It's just been really weird and, and stressful for several months. And I discovered some texts from his coworker a couple of nights ago. Very romantic, I love you, I can't stand to be away from you kind of, you know, we're in love type of shit. And um, we had a huge blow up, it got crazy. I acted like an idiot and contacted her husband because she's also married. Um, that sounds like it's gone to total shit. Um, but we have kind of decided to try, but now he's waffling and saying he's leaning toward leaving and just acting very crazy. And this just feels like it's all in the midst of this larger sort of general malaise and midlife crisis that he's been going through. He's been hostile and angry and treating me badly. And I don't know if he's going through some real crisis or if he's just been cheating on me. I don't know if he, he insists that it was just emotional, but I think it was more. And the more that I feel he lies and waffles, I'm acting crazy and angry and threatening and just spying on him. I discovered more. I, I don't know what to do. We have a counseling session that he now says he doesn't want to go to and I just feel like a total fucking fool and I just need some advice he's cheating on you he's staying out late and abusing alcohol perhaps other drugs he doesn't want to go to counseling with you he's done he's out this is over thank god that you were only trying to get pregnant and you are not yet pregnant because it doesn't sound like this relationship is going to last or should last. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I hope you have supportive friends and maybe a professional around you to help with the depression. But I think the depression may alleviate to some extent or the triggers for it or whatever's setting you off when you get out of this shitty dysfunctional relationship. And I think that you should get out of it soon. You say that you two were trying to get pregnant, trying to make a baby, and that seems to have coincided with him slamming his hand down on the eject button or the self-destruct button so hard he nearly broke the console. It's over. He wants out. His actions, if he's telling you that he still loves you, telling you that he's still open to potentially being with you for life and having that baby, that's a lie. And it doesn't sound like that's what he's telling you. He's telling you he's done and it's over and he's out. And you can't force him to stay. So stop trying to take care of this relationship and take care of yourself instead. As you exit this relationship, pull in the friends that you need for support, pull in the family members that you need and can trust and who love you for their support and get the professional help that you need as you end this relationship or declare this relationship dead. And it kind of already is dead. Just one of you needs to declare it. I'm really sorry. I hope that wasn't cruel 
I'm just trying to be straight and direct with you and blunt. My heart goes out to you. I am really glad. And I think you should also be glad that you didn't scramble your DNA together with this guy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old cis hetero monogamous woman living in the Pacific Northwest. I'm single and dating and looking for my partner. I've been dating this really great guy for about a month now. He's really successful, takes me out to nice dinners, and makes me feel amazing. He listens and engages with me in a way that makes me feel better than I've ever felt in a relationship. I've never been treated so good. Over the course of our dating, we've talked a bit about past relationships and family. His last long-term relationship ended a year ago. Mine ended about six months ago. We both want kids. It seemed that things were lining up just right. I felt like maybe this is it. He has been asking if he can take me somewhere this summer when my vacation comes up. He mentioned Barcelona, then New York City, and then we landed on London. All places I've never been to. I was warming up to the idea because I'm typically slow to make these kinds of decisions and journeys with a partner. I was about to tell him, let's do this. I was also considering being exclusive. This guy seemed like the whole package and I wanted to give him my full attention. But then my friend told me that she had looked him up on Facebook and Twitter and she thinks he has a kid. I want to say that while I don't have kids and haven't been married, someone having been divorced or kids is not a deal breaker for me. It is, however, a big part of someone's identity. And after looking at the very limited evidence on Twitter and Facebook, I decided I needed to know if he had a kid, what the situation was, especially before I agreed to travel with him. While this is probably a conversation best had in person, I asked him in a text because we weren't going to see each other in a few days. He told me that he has two sons, five and one, and that he was divorced last year. He's sorry that he didn't mention it sooner, and he wanted to, but didn't know when the right time was, and didn't want to scare me away before I got to know him. We met up a few days later and talked. Really, I just feel disappointed, like he violated my trust. It feels like a big turnoff, not because he has kids, but that he wasn't upfront about it. When is the right time for someone to share this information with someone they're dating? Is it a big deal that he didn't tell me sooner? Is it valid to feel like my trust had been violated? Or is it still early enough to give him a pass here? He was planning to tell me this week, but I just asked him first. Or is this a sign of a deeper issue? If he's willing to hide something this big, what other small truths is he willing to withhold? Maybe I'm just being sensitive because I found out by asking and it is actually a perfectly appropriate time to talk about something like this. What do you think, Dan? I think you give him a pass in the sense that you're giving him another chance. You flagged this as a violation of your trust, but you've only been dating this guy for four weeks. It is understandable. You know, somebody lies to you, somebody hides something from you. The question you have to ask after, what the fuck, dude, why would you do that, is was that a reasonable thing? Can you wrap your head around why someone might initially, at the outset, withhold that information? And while it wasn't the right thing to do, it's perfectly understandable why someone might hesitate to share that information because they fear rejection, because everybody fears rejection. People fear rejection so acutely that they will not roll out what they need to roll out or not roll it out on the time schedule that they're, the person that they're dating would like to have it rolled out on. You've only been dating this guy for four weeks. He left something big and important out, the existence of a five-year-old and a one-year-old and a previous 
relationship or previous marriage. Perhaps he's been rejected a bunch by women that looked at that. Maybe that was on his profile initially and he got no responses. So he took that off and then suddenly nice 31 year old cisgendered women looking for partners were like you were sending him messages. Doesn't make it right, but it does make it understandable. And then you give him another chance. And if it becomes a pattern, then you pull the plug. And he has to understand that he violated your trust. He's going to have to earn your trust back. And that withholding other things, mountains of student loan debt, parasitic twin, whatever it might be, withholding other things is going to undermine the relationship potentially fatally. Because this, not telling you himself and not telling you promptly about his marriage, his divorce, his children, really made you wonder about staying in this relationship. So you're giving him a pass, you're giving him a second chance, but there will be no third chance. And you want honesty from him as a condition going forward. There are no long-term relationships without passes, second chances, forgiveness ladled over it like fucking gravy. It's what makes them go. It's what makes them last. A month in does seem a little soon. does seem like they haven't earned that right to expect forgiveness and indulgence and passes and chances in the way I'm urging you to give them to him. But if you like him as much as you say that you do and it was working as well as you say it was before this came up, I think you owe it not to him but to yourself to give this guy a second chance. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old lesbian living in the southeast I have a question about a uh, recent hookup I had. Um, So I am dating someone. We've been together for about um, five or six months. Things kind of took a little bit of a turn and we decided we weren't in the place to be in any kind of like serious relationship. So we kind of decided to have a more casual like poly thing. We just had that conversation the other night, but a couple days before that, I actually ended up making out with a friend of mine. We were like in a club on the dance floor, just kind of like heat of the moment kind of thing. I don't plan on like hooking up with that person again. But since we decided to be poly after that, I never like a few days after that, I never told her about that hookup. And I'm wondering, like, is it wrong that I didn't tell her? Do I have a responsibility to tell her now am I like keeping something from her I mean in going forward it's kind of like things are casual and we can kind of like hook up with whoever else we want to but this kind of happened like a couple days before that so I'm just wondering is it wrong that I'm not telling her you say you and your girlfriend weren't in a place where you could have a committed relationship so you dialed it back and now it's a lot more casual and then you describe it later as Poly. Poly relationships aren't dialed back committed relationships. Poly relationships are committed and concurrent relationships. That's not what you're describing here. You and your girlfriend are going to keep seeing each other, keep hooking up, but it's casual. It's complicated. Your question, though, is about whether you need to run to the girlfriend and disclose that you made on a dance floor with somebody else a couple of days before you guys reframed your relationship and reframed your understanding of your relationship. And I don't think you do. I don't see why you wouldn't tell her. I don't see why it should be a problem that you made out on the dance floor with that girl. It wasn't sex. It was just kissing. It was a violation perhaps in theory of the commitment that you and your girlfriend had at the time. But you and your girlfriend were moving toward 
the agreement you came to a couple of days later, which was more casual and open. And that makeout session on the dance floor was a step in that direction. It was an indication that that's where you needed to go with your girlfriend. Yes, it was a technical foul. It wasn't sex. It was just making out. It was an indication and a serious indication that you needed the relationship with your girlfriend to be what it is now and not what technically it was at that precise moment you made out with that girl on the dance floor. If you feel totally guilty about it, if keeping this terrifying, terrible secret is a burden, you can tell your girlfriend, your cash, not Polly, but cash girlfriend about it and unburden yourself. I don't know how she'll react. She may feel violated. She may tell you that she's done a similar thing, that this conversation about dialing it back and openness and casual didn't come from nowhere. It didn't come from a place of contentment with your relationship as it was, but a realization that it needed to be restructured because you weren't the only one making out with other people out there or desiring other people. So hopefully if you confess, it'll be a non-issue, but you are under no obligation to confess this terrible, terrible, terrible sin. Hi, Dan. I am officiating my best friend's wedding uh, in a couple months and I'm trying to write the speech and I realized I have no idea what to say. So just kind of wondering uh, what is the team's kind of favorite things to see at a wedding? Uh, totally non-religious one, uh, just uh, civil. They want to keep it short and simple. But yeah, just wondering if there's good checklist of things to include or what you guys think. I don't know what the fuck to tell you to say. I would be filled with such anxiety if I had to stand up and give that speech. So here's what I would do, and I'm going to gift this to you. I think this is a good idea. I think this is the way to handle it. Create an online Google Doc and get from the bride and the groom the email addresses of everyone who's going to be attending their wedding and open source this thing. Toss it out there that you need to give this speech and you're nervous about it. You don't know what to say and you would like to – Speak on behalf of everyone who was invited to the wedding by having everyone invited to the wedding. Kind of do the wiki version of the speech that needs to be given for this particular couple. And then you will get anecdotes and you will get insight and you'll get advice from all of the attendees. And think how much fun it'll be for the attendees after you edit this down and condense it for them to hear the sentence or the phrase or the anecdote or the story that they contributed to your little speech. That's how I would do it. Hi, I'm calling with a suggestion for the caller in episode 608, whose wife was only in the mood every couple months. Um, I found myself in a similar situation where all of a sudden, you know, one day my libido just dropped. But I realized that once a week, I or for a full week every month, I was just incredibly aroused and my libido was at a level 10. We started tracking my periods and my cycles and Turns out that every that week, every month was because I was ovulating. So then we started tracking it, and it was like clockwork. So then we knew one week out of every month, I would be incredibly aroused, and it was actually really exciting, planning for it and anticipating. So I would recommend maybe start tracking your cycles, and maybe if you know when she's ovulating, you could start anticipating, and maybe she'll start noticing a little twinges here and there. Another thing you mentioned was that she goes to bed at 10 and you don't go to bed till two. I also had that problem. And, you know, and 
that caused a huge issue in our intimacy. And so my husband started just coming to bed with me and we were in bed and we were talking and we were touching. And after that, a lot of times it turned into something. The final tip is your wife should definitely start practicing getting really good at blowjobs because that was the cure on the other days of the month where I wasn't really feeling it. Started giving really good blowjobs and uh, now everything's perfect. So good luck. Hi, Dan. I am just calling to publicly recognize the badass man who I often see driving up and down Harford Road in Baltimore on my commute to and from work, whose license plate on his huge truck reads ITMFA. Sir, I applaud your bold move to have the MVA print that plate for you, and I always feel a swell of pride and solidarity every time I see your truck drive by. If you ever see a tiny sky blue Prius C with a dented back bumper driving alongside you, know that we are in this fight together. Hi, Dan. This is a comment for episode 608, where you talked about the woman who had invited the Amazon delivery driver into her home, and he had sent her a couple of inappropriate messages. I agree with what you said mostly, that no crime was committed in that interaction. But at the same time, I don't really understand your definition of sexual harassment, because getting unwanted dick pics like, I think that is a part of sexual harassment. You don't necessarily have to say no or say stop, and then the person continue in order to be sexually harassed. That puts so many women out of that category, and I just don't think you are completely right on that one. All right. Quick correction and an apology. Sending unsolicited dick pics is not okay. It is assholery, as I called it on last week's show. It's also a form of sexual harassment, just one of the many forms of sexual harassment that women are forced to endure on a daily basis. The caller was made to feel uncomfortable and unsafe in her own home, and I didn't intend to place any blame on her. The caller also described receiving those pics as sexual assault, as a crime, and wondered whether she should go to the police. And that's kind of where I got off track and my language became imprecise. I was talking cops and crimes and criminal statutes. And while sending someone an unsolicited dick pic is sexual harassment, full stop, or not quite a full stop because I'm going to go on here, it's not criminal harassment. Perhaps it should be. Again, it is definitely sexual harassment, and I should have made that clear, and my apologies to the caller – And my thanks to all of you who called in. I don't always get everything right. No one does. But I can always count on you guys to set me right when I don't. And for any boys out there who might be confused about when to send a dick pic, we did a whole segment on the art of the solicited dick pic with Nicole Mazeo of Pleasure Pie, an organization promoting sexual consent. And consent is always the most important ingredient. That's episode 588 of the Savage Lovecast. So again, if you are confused about when and whether and where and how to send those dick pics, Go back to episode 588 and listen to my conversation with Nicole Mazeo. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump Film Fest is touring the country, my dirty little porn film festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming in and on a city near you. And of course, as always, go to itmfa.org to get some ITMFA merch and support three great organizations fighting the demonic Trump administration, Planned Parenthood, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the International Refugee Assistance Project, itmfa.org. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Rob Walker, the workologist from the New York Times, on Twitter at NotRobWalker. 
If you like my political rantings at the top of the show, you should also check out the Blabbermouth podcast produced here at The Stranger, hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders, me, Eli Rich-Smith, Katie Herzog, others. We discuss the news of the week and have fun doing it. Check it out. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.